Welcome to The The Get Get Together. Together. It's our show about the nuts and bolts, the meat and potatoes, or in this case, the bangers and the mash of community building. I see what you did there. That was a joke. Uh, I'm your host, Bailey Richardson. Hey, Bailey. I'm a partner at People & Company. I am also a co-author of Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People, which is available now on Amazon. Congratulations. You wrote a book? That is rad. We wrote a book, We wrote a book. I'm Kevin (laughs) Huynh. I'm also a partner at People & Company, one of the other co-authors of Get Together. What's up? Each episode of this podcast, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. Extraordinary. How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to thousands more members? How? Today we're talking to Rafe Offer, the co-founder of So Far Sounds. So Far, So Far. So, so Far Sounds is a community-led global movement that's bringing the magic back to live music. Dissatisfied by a concert-going experience in 2009, Rafe and two friends decided to take action. They hosted an intimate concert in a living room in London. Three living room concerts later, there were lines around the block of people eager to attend. Soon enough, folks in cities around the world raised their hands to bring the format to new cities. Now, today, 10 years later, there are 500 gigs per month in more than 300 cities worldwide. That's a lot. And more than 25,000 performers of all stripes have put on shows, including big names from Leon Bridges and Billie Eilish to Benjamin Clementine and Karen O. Kev, what stuck out with you about our conversation with Ref? Well, to me, the um, it was the core elements that make a so far sounds experience different. Like we talk about how every community has its shared activity, and with so far sounds, it's you know attending, hosting, being at a sort of live music experience in perhaps an unconventional location. And Rafe mentions how concerts in spaces like living rooms isn't a new thing, but it's the feel of a so far sounds one that kind of stands for something different. It's about creating a more like supportive and respectful and intimate environment for music. It isn't the loud bar where people are talking over it, they're on their phone. There are rules like, you know, you should stay for all of the artists or, you know, having a greeter at the door that's just not a bouncer that's going to grunt at you or how they, you know, showcase a diversity of artists. Many times you don't know who's going to be at the show ahead of time. And I think these elements, and he says they're really born out of the values that they've um, they've created for so far are what makes that you know, concert experience a bit different. And it, and it took some time. It took iteration to get there, but it, they created this really great kind of sandbox for a shared activity that now, you know, local hosts and performers can fill in in other cities. It has those common elements that makes it really magical, but different based on what they're putting into it. Yeah, magical, different, repeatable. Yeah. They really hit the jackpot with this this design. All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's get into Let's it. Let's go. Rafe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We've had such an amazing time learning more about So Far Sounds. And we like to kick off every podcast with a similar question. My my partner in crime, Kevin, always likes to say that if you started a community, you just can't fake the funk. Like organizers have to care about the community they're growing and the purpose behind it. So just wanted to ask you a personal question. Where did this all start for you? Can you paint the picture of this realization you had that you wanted to change the way people listened to music and got together around music? Sure. So nice to meet you, Bailey and Kevin. And I couldn't agree more. It's hard to fake it. And 
I guess my my uh, evidence is that I started as a hobby, and mm. it just came from a fan's frustration with live music experience today. And I'm talking more about indie, folk, pop, everything but classical and opera. I just started literally by hanging out in a bar with two mm. friends, <laughs> and we were listening to a band called The Friendly Fires. And it was I a, know the friendly fires. Do you? You got good taste, buddy. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so it was a small place for them. They're playing a lot bigger venues now. Mm. But at the time they were playing and it baffled the three of us that there was this sense of them playing and uh, everybody talking. And not about the band. And I kind of turned to a friend and said, you know, can you imagine this happening at the opera or at a movie theater mm. where mm. this chatter was rampant and people were on their phones and they were texting and again, not about the band. And on top of all that, Bailey, the bar was open. And you know how when you're in a bar and you hear all that loud clanging, that was all happening and it was so loud, all those things together, that actually it wasn't all that easy to hear them and they're a loud band. Wow. Hmm. So I just looked at my friends and I said, hey, you know, this is not right. Hmm. One of them was a musician at the time and we just said, let's, let's get out of here and let's figure out a way to make a nicer experience where there's respect for what's on stage. I really appreciate that one of Kevin and my friends, Tina Roth Eisenberg, says you can either complain or you can do something about it. And I've heard so many people complain about concert experiences, especially with phones, especially, you know, around 2010, around that time, people were just intermediating the experience and, but you decided to do something about it. And I, I've read that you had two friends, David Alexander and a man with the best name ever, Rocky Start, um, <laughs> who were your co-conspirators. But can, yeah, can you tell us about that you guys decided, hey, we're going to prototype a solution ourselves and we're going to fix this ourselves. Can you tell us about that very first uh, sort of so far experience, um, probably before you even had a name for it, what that was like and how you set it up? Totally. And you're right. We didn't have a name. So the three of us went to Dave's house and Dave was the one with the musical talent and he offered to perform. He had about five songs up his sleeve. He is a tall Irishman from Belfast, very charming. Mm. And he just uh, asked us to gather around in his living room. We had brought drinks, but we made sure to have them later. As you said, the phones in the way were down and Rocky and I were the fans. And so we just sat there quiet, mm. invited roughly eight people. And with Dave and, and his housemates, there were about 10 of us. And what was really amazing and incredible is that when he started to play, that silence was magical. There really was no other way to describe it. Mm. And it's such an obvious thing. And by the way, it's such an old idea. People have been playing intimate concerts for hundreds of years in the, across the US, across India, Europe, Mozart's time and beyond. So it was nothing new, but for us it was new mm. and we hadn't experienced it. And it was so quiet that night, you could literally hear a little clock ticking 
tick tock, tick tock in the background. And that was it. Mm. And so we leaned in to use a more modern phrase and, mm. and we just enjoyed the music coming over us like a bath. We were very mindful, which was not something we were thinking about in 2010, but yeah. we were, it was almost relaxing. Mm. And we just said, this is really nice. Let's keep doing it. I read that by the time you hosted your third event, you had a line out the door of people wanting to attend. Is that first off true or fake news, as we like to say here stateside? And um, if it is true, how did people find out about this private thing that you had hosted? It was 100% true. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we've been going about 10 years and the first eight years, including then, was word of mouth. So I called up about 40 people and then emailed them and said, come to this place in Regent's Park. Mm. And at that time we had had three or four acts lined up. But what we didn't know is that the ones who were the first one, the second one had heard about it and they told their friends and that's what led to a very, very crowded mm. living room, mm. you know, that fit 40 but had 80. Because uh, we, we were like... Don't tell the fire fire code. Whoops. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah, we've, gotten TMI. Lot, yeah. we've gotten a lot more uh, sensible since that third one about I'm the sure, right amount of people. Sure. You're absolutely right. And it was just super crowded. But, you know, we wanted to include everybody from the, from the get-go. And it was just incredible times 10 of, of the first one because all these people huddled together, uncomfortable but not caring... The music we had curated on the night was really strong. That was something that's always been part of so far. We want people to come and feel it's better than expected, be rewarded uh, for traipsing out to God knows where. And on that night, it was very special. So yeah, it's all true. When we work with people who are organizing grassroots events and, and taking it from one place and then having other folks in other cities start to do it, that first person or the first couple of other people who are taking the model and starting to do it themselves, that's the stage where it becomes important to document what you're doing at home and really get clear on, okay, these are the key components of, of a So Far Sounds concert or a, a meetup that we're hosting here, X, Y, and Z. So I wanted to ask you about a woman named Casey who I believe was what we like to call the first hand raiser, uh, a woman who said, hey, can I do this in my city? Can you tell me about Casey, if she was indeed the first hand raiser, and how that, what she said to you changed, changed your approach to so far? Yeah, Casey was in LA and working for K-Rock and I think had seen some online footage and that was, without a doubt, a momentous time when somebody we didn't know reached out and said, hey, I want to start this in L.A. And I was thinking, well, go ahead. You know, it's just a, a house concert. Anyone can do anything. But what she said back was what was the sort of momentous thing for at least me at that time was I want to do this thing you're doing and I want to connect the dots and be part of this community and do the same thing in Los Angeles. And so that was the start of a flood of people who we didn't know, who had heard of us through word of mouth, literally being in the living room in London 
and then going back home to mm. their country or seeing video. Mm. And you mentioned values. We had three things from the start which still exist, which is support all of it, stay for all of it. And that comes back to the whole, let's say, mentality of support acts where people don't support all the acts. They come for their headliner or whoever their chosen is. And they're, for lack of a better word, rude to everybody else. That's when they're talking the most. That's when they're going outside. Mm. And we just said stay for all of it. And we said respect all of it. That was the second, let's call it guideline. And the third one, which stuck, was uh, if you like what you hear, go hear it again. Hmm. And, and not it so far, by the way. I don't care if they come back to hear us. Just go support art and who you've experienced. Yeah. So Casey was, was a big tipping point. I'd love to dig more into those guidelines. And maybe first, like, could you run us through you know, what a So Far Sounds event feels like, looks like, you know, what's the current version of the format that makes it like, oh, that's a So Far experience? The vast majority of them are secret. So we don't reveal the lineup and we don't reveal where it is. We might tell you an area. So if it's New York, you might know it's Williamsburg or the Lower East Side, but you won't know where. They are secret with the lineups because of what I said a minute ago about us wanting everyone to support everybody equally. So we have no such thing as a headliner and we just feel that it's all equal. We do it based on the vibe of the music so that you're on a bit of a journey starting upbeat, maybe going more mellow or quirky and ending upbeat. Mm. And each of the three acts, it's normally three acts, plays about 20, 25 minutes. You sit on the floor, it's intimate. That may be the most important thing. We rarely go over a hundred people. The sweet spot's around 70. So it's a secret pop-up event in a small space where nobody talks, everyone focuses on, on what's at hand. And I guess another defining feature is the genres are open. So you could hear hip-hop followed by classical, followed by an indie band mm. or spoken word, followed by some mm. sort of weird dance performance, followed by <laughs> folk. You just don't know what you're going to get. And it opens people's minds. So that's, I guess, the, the general concept of it. Almost all of them are also BYOB. We like to save people money, and we think it's a way for people to meet. It's almost like a picnic in a living room or whatever space it is. You know, with these sort of community-organized you know, projects and events, I feel like there's this balance of providing enough structure, like the right sort of sandbox that people can fill in and, and remix to make their own. And, and it feels like you've gone through this process of, of creating enough structure and constraints to help them make this like compelling experience, but at the same time left enough open that, you know, there is the flavor of where it's hosted and who's going to be there and probably some other pieces, you know, was this sort of these guidelines, you know, from those values to those, um, sort of format elements. Did it take a while for you to settle on, yeah, these are, you know, this is the shape of what it means to host one of these? Or was that kind of from the beginning and it was um, kind of a matter of just continuing to replicate that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there was a lot of iteration. At the very beginning, it was more of a pass the guitar vibe. And we'd only curated a little bit, like that third one I mentioned. But Sometimes somebody would take the guitar and the talent wouldn't be there or they'd play quite a long time. We also got tired of white guys with guitars and we said, we got to break out of that. 
And we were super empowering. You know, Bailey mentioned Casey earlier. It's like, you do what you want in LA. We want to have some say in that the quality bar is high from the get-go, but go for it and, and figure it out based on local talent. So as we started to go to other cities around the world, it was always super empowering. And I think community is built by some things that are fixed, that are set in stone, but that everything around it is super empowering to the, the recipient. And then the other thing about the community that was a big surprise was that people would actually meet, you know, sitting together. Mm. And we can get into it at some point if you want, but the amount of people who have met people who they didn't know and become friends, start dating or literally get married to people they met sitting next to is, uh, is a lot higher than I would have ever anticipated. <laughs> Sounds like I need to go to so far. Let's do this. <laughs> I, uh, I do want to ask you about a, one of the things that we really feel is true about growing a community is that it's not about managing people. It's about developing capacity, developing leaders. And I think one of the things that's so amazing about so far is how many different types of roles there are. You know, you have like now some city coordinators, you have MCs at events, you have artists. And I, I'm wondering if you could just break down some of the key roles that are involved in a so far event so people can understand like who's helping you guys realize this, th these events. Sure. So we have two types of cities around the world. One is where we have staff where we're charging a ticket price and that goes to paying for somebody's salary like in New York and it goes to always paying the artist something and occasionally we'll film and then the rest of the world is like I started it is still at this point uh, volunteer based but the elements are the same so there's somebody who's got to be a venue scout where's it going to be is it my house is it your house is it the top of a ski jump which we had. <laughs> I've heard about that. Oh, that was nuts. I was there. <laughs> Amazing. It was kind of scary, too. <laughs> yeah, I have this image in my head, and I wonder if it is what I imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah, this little ne ne needle-like thing up in the sky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're on the top, top of the huddled, like, okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so there's Venue Scout. That is a role. That is a thing. And then there is a review team. We believe that music should be a democratic selection process. So nobody ever picks by themselves. There's always three to five people and it's a vote. And I feel that if people who are music fans and they all say yes, or most of them do, then that's a pretty good way of vetting it. And that's how we've done it from the beginning. So there are reviewers. There's a greeter at the door. You know how you go to a club or maybe a traditional gig and somebody grunts your name? Uh, we, uh, or, Somebody just grunts, period, and they, yeah. <laughs> and they sign you off a list. I don't like that. It should be feel like you're going to somebody's house. Mm. So there's somebody there. There's someone who's making sure the artists are okay and they know when they go on. And then, as you said, there's an MC who's like the glue for the whole evening. So each of these are quite specific roles. At the beginning, it was obviously just me and Dave and Rocky. But as it grew and as a community pitched in, they said, hey, how can we help? Yeah. And what kind of resources, tools, trainings do you guys offer to any of these roles? I'm sure it's quite developed now, but is there anything you can call out that you think is really worth mentioning to someone who's thinking about building a chapter-based model that you feel like has been really powerful for your constituents around the world? 
Yeah, I think we're, we're pretty light touch because of the point about empowerment later. But I think a lot of it depends if somebody who's listening to this is starting or considering starting something. The first big decision, is it a charity? Is it a social enterprise or is it a for-profit business? Mm. Each one of them hopefully has a purpose behind it. Why are you doing this? And that it's well beyond just you know, wanting to make money, which we all need to do to live, of course. But what is the higher purpose? But then underneath that, there are definitely different ways of bringing them to life based on all of the way that you bring it to life. So if you're a charity, you know, you, you can sit people down within reason and they're donating their spare time and you can kind of give them a toolkit and say, this is how you do it. With so far, it's extremely light touch and they come and they kind of get a sense, but they're doing it uh, in their spare time for a, for a business. So we just need to, to make sure, and anyone who's listening, need, you need to understand what the, what the rules are before you set out. I think then the most important thing is what I said earlier, is just having some sort of overarching values. And then the more you can get into the specifics when it's appropriate, the better uh, to, to help them. We also use Skype and Zoom just as ways to get to know people. And then as it became global, in our case, it got harder to travel. But where you can, it makes a huge difference to actually be there and support that team. Yeah. How did you make that decision between, you know, charity, nonprofit, for-profit? You know, this is a discussion that um, sometimes you get to have with different people who start interesting meetups and communities, you know, just having a discussion with uh, a young man uh, two days ago who is starting these like intimate meetups in his home where folks you know, are meeting people they don't know and he's kind of facilitating these exercises and people are really loving it and he's kind of battling with this decision in his head around, you know, do I want to just have an interesting open source project that's out there or, you know, people are paying a small ticket price. Is, is this a little bit of a business? So how did you think about that? For me, it was around, is this a hobby or is it actually be your livelihood? And when the hobby, which, as I said, was at least six years, when that hobby became 20 hours a week, then in my case, my <laughs> wife's like, what's up? <laughs> the, the numbers are telling me. Yeah, this, is a bit, this is a bit too much. Uh, so then you have to decide, well, can you do it full time as a charity? Do you want to go down that path or as a business? So I think a lot of it was based on how much time it takes. And then the business side was, well, I think this can be a lot better for musicians mm. who are really why we're doing this, musicians and fans, but let's start with the musician. If we think about it as a business, because we can grow faster, we can be organized in a different way, we can raise some money and we can do this thing in a way where we can control our own destiny. Charity, you're constantly asking for money and nothing wrong with that, but it's hard, it's a hard road. As an aside, I'm on a foundation board, and so I'm very busy also with my spare time now uh, getting to know charities, and I just see it's a difficult road. So I had some sense going into it that if you want to do it full-time, the business road is better for music, in, in this case, better and easier for me and my family. I had a family to feed, and that was my own highly personal decision. Mm -hmm. I, I think anybody listening, it's gotta be a personal decision, but that was the way we thought it through. I wanted to ask you about 
you're, you have a background in marketing. Like you held pretty senior positions at Coca-Cola and Walt Disney, which marketing there is no joke. <laughs> so I, I'm curious how you think about how storytelling and communication has affected the growth and health of so far. How do you think about that and its role with the community? And yeah, yeah, I'm just curious to pick your brain. That is such a great question because I think storytelling is absolutely central to the growth of Sofer Sounds and who we were since we had no way of growing, we had no money except for people talking about it. And I think word of mouth is far more interesting when someone comes away with a little gem of a story. One of my favorite stories which embodies some of this was when there was a Sofer in the Bowery and it was summer, so it was very hot. And this was before we even were charging for tickets. We had passed a hat at the time. And it was about to start, and the door creaked open, and everyone thought it was a latecomer. It was. It was a homeless man. And he was quite ragged. He smelled a bit, apparently. And he just came in, and he sat down. No one batted an eye. Everyone's like, okay, it's another person here to hear music. And the night went on. He stayed there like everybody else. He respected the music like everybody else. It ended. Then the leader passed the hat around and this homeless guy who looked like he had nothing to his name pulled out a $20 bill and popped it in the hat. Now everybody else had put in a dollar or $5 max. And so the organizer ran over to him and said, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your support. And he said, no, thank you. I get very little respect mm. uh, generally. I actually used to play an instrument. I know how hard it is to, to perform and have people focus on you. And you treated me like everybody else. That's rare, thank you. And with that, he walked out into the evening. And so people told that story. And for me, it just embodied who we are in a much more interesting way. It happened. Uh, our values of everybody's equal. We're an inclusive community. Uh, you know, money shouldn't be a barrier. We didn't expect anything from him, but, you know, he came and he, he gave something. So that was the way a story can help you grow. And I think that storytelling is so connected today to social media. The best stories, they get shared. Uh, if you just list things, it's quite boring. We've heard the phrase, you know, death by PowerPoint. Yeah, you, you know, in companies you see these slides. So... Uh, I think it's all about the story, uh, as long as the story has a point that is connected to what you're talking about. There's a nice connection to um, those values you shared earlier about all artists being supported and all the folks being respected. And you know, maybe that starts with thinking about, oh yeah, we don't want anyone to like only come from the headliner and not leave with other artists. But I think kind of instilling that as you know one of the core tenets of how you design this experience leads to other things. And that's part of like providing that right structure. So, you know, these, the, the local organizers can continue to manifest this in ways you, you know, you can't imagine and continue to uphold some of those things that are really important. Yeah. If I take one thing away from this interview, it's how many times and with what conviction I've, I've heard you say values. We interview a lot of people and I can hear how the storytelling piece, if the, if the event is designed 
in the right way. The stories reflect the values. And at the end of the day, that's really what makes so far different, right? Is it's like approaching music with a different, a different set of perspectives and sort of like a different, a different desire to support the artists and really hear the music. It's about like a different approach. And if that doesn't scale, you lose the value of sort of the product that you're offering. So it's really interesting to just see how how much you keep going back to that word values and how to me the storytelling piece is like a vehicle for showing not telling the stuff that you hold sacred it's also a really important way to know when you have to shut things down when you have to act Mm. we had heard that the leader a little while ago in austin texas was not living those values and Mm. i'm in london Uh, we weren't able to afford to fly there so we heard from one of the leaders in Dallas, Jay, hmm. about it, that he had heard through word of mouth from those two cities. And he just got in a car and drove to Austin, got into the gig, brought a secret hidden camera. Oh, gosh. Wow. Accountability. <laughs> and yes. Community at, the, at work. Yeah. Filmed, filmed it, shared with me the footage, and there was the leader drunk holding a bottle of uh, something, Hmm. slurring speech, blocking the view. There was talking. The bands were not good. Hmm. Uh, They were this person's friends. Everything that we hold dear was gone. So we shut it down. You know, we put Austin on hold. It's been reborn Hmm. and it's awesome now. But it was a matter of you can't do this without holding people accountable. And if somebody's hired uh, for a charity or a business that's community-based, it's so toxic when they're not living those values uh, or any business, but you, you feel it very quickly because you're held up as a hypocrite. If you're like talking one way, but then you're letting something happen in Austin or some other city that doesn't connect with that. Mm. So actually, it's dangerous to do this and talk about it without having the ability to act when things are not so good. Yeah. Can, that's a great point. We say, you know, just as much as a good leader can push a community forward, a bad one can affect the whole group in a negative way. How did you handle that conversation with that leader? Or what is your approach to having those kinds of hard conversations? Is there anything you can recommend or offer to people listening? It's really tough, is first of all. And I think when you're ever going to have a difficult conversation, one of the best things to do is to role play. Mm. So you grab a friend who you trust, a family member, and you let them pretend like they're the recipient and you talk to them and you try it several times like you're rehearsing. The reason it's so powerful is you get some of the nerves out because it is terrifying sometimes Mm. to tell people something in a hard-hitting way and it's not easy for everybody. Uh, It may not be easy for anybody. And that gets that practice down and you anticipate questions. And then back to our, our point about values, you have to align their behavior against the values. And so the first time, if it's a warning, you say, well, look, so far it's about respecting. And we understand that you know, people are talking through the music. That's not who we are. Or people are blocking the view because they're filming something. That's not who we are. You do that. Uh, you don't quote-unquote fire them the first time you probably then followed up with in writing three strikes you know once you get to a third time then you got to say look I've told you about it Mm. last month and then again last week and now here's the third time or however the conversation goes but if you anchor it against the expected behavior I find it's 
the kind of conversation that can go a bit easier when you do those things. Yeah, I love that. You mentioned a bit about team members and and your team. I'm curious what you know. What does the community side of your the organization look like right now? Is are there other city leads? Is it full time and contract? Yeah, there's three types right now as we've expanded. There's the full time. New York's a great example of that. There's the contract, which is a freelance, which we call a curator position, which might be a smaller city where they don't have the time themselves or Mm -hmm. they have three other jobs, they're doing different things, or it's too small a city to think that people are going to sustain it by uh, paying a ticket price. Mm. And then there are places we have not incorporated, which, by the way, is over 50 countries where they're just doing it like I did for the the love Mm. of it. And that may be a place like Lebanon or Australia. Mm. So I guess anyone who's listening in a city where we're not, yeah, come on, (laughs) get in touch. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because it's really very locally focused, but then um, sort of staffing appropriately based on that location, what's happening there, what will happen there. Yeah, and I think one of the beauties, which we didn't intend at the beginning, but one of the beauties is the globalness of it. So if you're putting on a show in Baltimore, you can talk to the artist and say, yes, you're playing here, but you're also playing to the world. So there may be a video that we share on all our platforms, and we have a lot of views now and subscribers, or if it's not filmed, it might be recorded in a different way or simply talked about. And then that band that's played in Baltimore can let the leader in Sacramento know when they're out there, hey, I've played it so far, and they're already part of the community. So that globalness is super important, at least for who we are. So I read you guys are at something like 500 gigs per month, more than 300 cities, and you've had something like 25,000 performers put on shows. So you're, you've grown a lot since 10 years ago with one show in you know, a friend's living room. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now running an organization at that scale? Like what's on your mind? Sure. So number one is scaling the magic. It's a nice thing when you're together and there's a really good band and it's intimate. How do you make sure that that happens 500 times a month or a thousand times a month, which it'll probably be before summer next year. So how, as it grows, can you make sure that the quality's there? That is really hard, and that gives a lot of us sleepless nights. Mm. I, but I find if you obsess over that, and if you worry about it a lot, then actually it's pretty okay. I did a 10-city U.S. tour not long ago, and I was really happy to come back and say all 10 of them were as strong as it was when I started it. Mm. So that's an issue. I guess the second one is how you meet artist needs. So an artist might not know how to apply. We have so many gigs going on, we might not respond promptly to their questions or even an email comes in and it's not captured, it's confusing. How do we scale it in a way that if thousands of people want to come play instead of a few dozen, it's clear the signposts on how you can get involved and that it's consistent, not just in the actual event, but the application process around the world. That's really difficult. I think a third question is just hiring people. You know, that's the essence of who we are. We've gone from totally volunteer to having a staff. It's hard to build a a team and keep 
that team motivated and excited and consistently you know, awesome. And so that's a challenge that any business has, but it's particularly difficult when you're switching gears from community only to business stroke community. How do you mesh all those things mm-hmm. and communicate to those who are either volunteering, curating, or full-time? How has the transition for you been going from a more corporate background working at places like Walt Disney and Coke to running something so grassroots and so much yours and and your your sort of like hobby and baby what has that been like for you uh kind of personally oh it's been so both scary and uh freeing so scary when we work for a big company you have this sense of Vulnerability. You're not going to lose your job. Disney's not going to go to business. It feels great. The paycheck comes in and that's secure. I learned, though, it's not always as secure as you think. Mm-hmm. Big companies have layoffs. You might not get along with your boss. There may be all sorts of pressures put on you. You learn that a lot later. So the sense of starting a business really feels like jumping off a cliff like, how am I going to feed my family, to my point earlier, mm-hmm. or feed yourself if you don't have a family? But the freedom trumps that. The sense of, in my case, not having a boss and working for something I love and doing it every day is incredibly liberating. And I remember just being in meetings with uh, companies back in the day where people were talking so much about the bottom line, so much about the profit. You know, even though they had missions, those missions got lost and it wasn't inspiring anyone as much as it used to. And I just said, you know, that's not okay. I want to do something that I can wake up every day and be excited about, even if it's going to be really tough. Yeah, I love that. If I could give you a magic wand and you could, you know, ask for anything on behalf of the So Far Sounds community, what would it be? That we would have So Far's whether they're paid or not, doesn't matter, but just open doors all around the world uh, at every given moment. Mm-hmm. And that if you're a fan and you're going to Paris, there'd be one every day, maybe 10 a day in the areas, and you could just go rock up to uh, a church basement or some other quirky space. And that if you're a band, that you could play and get paid and we could help you sustain yourself because of this network of paying gigs where you're getting more fans and people are respectful. And I guess my my wand would extend a little bit towards uh, other gigs. I don't feel like we compete. I feel like everybody, there's a time and place for different types of gigs. And I'd like it just to work together so that there's a nice ecosystem of, uh, let's say, allowing little kids to grow up thinking that they can be a musician and actually do it full time Mm. and be in the arts and not have to worry about how they're going to sustain themselves and listen to mommy and daddy saying, you need to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Rafe, uh, this was such a pleasure speaking to you and hearing about the organization you've built. We're, we're big fans and it's only made us more, more <laughs> of big fans hearing you speak about it. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope to see you in uh, a living room or uh, <laughs> a top of a ski jump sometime soon. <laughs> I was say, I'm going for that uh, ski jump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
If you want to get involved with SoFar Sounds, maybe attending or helping to bring an event to your city, go to their website, SoFarSounds.com, or check out their rad videos from concerts and events around the world on their YouTube channel. Bailey, what is the most unconventional place you've attended a concert or music experience oh dang it i thought you would just maybe ask me what my favorite concert was oh no God, i mean you can share oh, that golly, you can share that oh, as well golly. well you know um either the rec center in mississauga toronto oh nice or the there. the lobby of the public theater which are both choir 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 events and then also you know in brooklyn there's a little street near my apartment where every year they set up chairs out on the street, they block off the street, like put a bunch of folding chairs up and a piano teacher who teaches a bunch of kids from the neighborhood mics up a piano inside the house and you can see the kid come up, sit in front of the window and everyone sits there and listens to this rehearsal. That's really cool. And so like each kid will sign up to play a song and it's played just outside onto speakers and they can see people like watching them as if it's like a big performance and it's like a very beautiful part of Brooklyn. Um, but I, I saw in like a, a piece of paper flyer sign for this like stoop piano yeah. recital. And I was like, I'm totally going to that. So probably yeah. that. That's rad. Yeah. What about you? One thing comes to mind, I, one time when I was in Paris, I was, crashing, in Paris. I was crashing on the floor of this flamenco guitarist. Huh. And he hung out with a bunch of flamenco dancers. And then we went out. Uh, you know, grab some drinks. And then in the very late at night at some point, of course, you know, he and his friend like brought out their guitars like on the street. And then they also had all their flamenco dancer friends there. And so it was this like, yeah, it was this concert dance experience. And I was like, wow, you know, traveling and how how special this is. Did you get your flamenco on? Uh, No, but yeah, I... I did groove in some sort of Hip-hop way groove to, to, some to the dance, to the music. Hey, if you want to find out more about us, <laughs> <laughs> you can go to our website, uh, peopleand.company. It's a dot .company, not a dot .com. Not a dot .com. Not dot a dot .com. Company. People and company. Um, also, our book is on Amazon. Amazon bestseller, Get Together, How to Woo! Build a Community with Your People. Uh, it's full of stories and learnings from conversations with community leaders. Community leaders, not leaders. Not leaders. But community leaders like this one with Rafe. Um, so please check it out. Uh, and if you'd just like to say hi, you can do so. Send us an email. Hi at peopleand.company. Oh, and last thing, baby. If you can, review our podcast. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. And uh, subscribe because it helps us show up for more people to find. Yes. All right. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for your time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.